All right, good evening, everybody. Let's go ahead and get started. If you got your Bibles, uh, you want to follow along. Romans 8, 12 through 14. Um, in fact, I, I would encourage you to follow along. And if I could, I would make you. I would make you do it. You know, I, I know you guys trust me. Um, I appreciate that. But there's been a lot of people misled by people they trust. You know, it is your responsibility to make sure that what anybody is preaching and teaching you comes from the Word of God. Don't ever take it for granted that you can just implicitly trust somebody. You make sure that what's being taught from this pulpit lines up uh, with the Word of God. That's on, that's on you. Uh, Romans 8, 12 through 14, the title, Where is the Evidence? Let's read our three verses. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god um when you think about it we all kind of tend to live in a bubble don't we what i mean by that is you you pretty much hang out with the same people whether it's on your job whether it's in your house whether it's at church whether it's with your friends you tend to hang around people who kind of share your beliefs and your values. And, and I, my guess would be most of you probably watch the same television shows. You go to the same news channel. You visit the same websites. Uh, and it's usually uh, news channels and websites that reflect your value system and your belief system. It's just kind of human nature. But that's one of the reasons that I like surveys. I've always loved surveys for some reason. Because I think they give you a window into what other people really think. You know, I, you may look across the church and see somebody, but you don't really know what they believe down deep. And sometimes these surveys can, can uncover what people really uh, think. Uh, Arizona Christian University every year does a survey, and I've been following them for the last seven or eight years. And it's called the American Worldwide Inventory. And um, what they do is they, uh, they, they call up several thousand Americans and they're trying to ascertain how many or what percentage of Americans have a biblical worldview. Now, let me explain what I mean by worldview. Everybody has a belief system or a value system which you view the world with, right? Everybody does. Um, for example, one person may think that people are basically good. Another person may think that people are basically bad. And whatever your belief on that, that's how you'll view or interpret the world. That's called a, a worldview. It's the lens with which you interpret events and see things like that. A biblical worldview means that your value system lines up with the Bible. Everybody with me? So this survey every year tries to find out what percentage of Americans, their value system and their beliefs line up with the Bible. So what they do is they call several thousand Americans and they ask them 51 questions. And they're all uh, biblical beliefs. Now, they don't say the Bible says, right? They just make a statement and they ask, do you agree and disagree? And by the way, these are easy questions if you know the Bible. They're not asking them to explain the Trinity or anything like that. They just basically say something like this. Um, Jesus was sinless. Do you agree or do you disagree? And that's, you either agree or you disagree. 
right? It's pretty simple stuff. So I, I want to give you, I don't know if y'all can see that very well. Uh, this is just one of the, they crunch all the numbers and they, they look at different things. This is, um, uh, this is just one brief area where they made a statement and then they asked people what they thought. And they got four columns. Certain people identified as evangelicals. Certain people identified as Pentecostal. Others identified as mainline, which would be like Episcopalian and Lutheran. And then others identified as, as Catholic. So here's just a few examples. They make the statement, people are not basically good. We are sinners. 75% of evangelicals reject that. 75%. Now, by the way, these are all statements that are true according to the Bible. 75% of evangelicals disagreed with that. 84% of Catholics. How about this one? What faith you embrace matters more than simply having faith. 62% of evangelicals reject that. 84% of Catholics. How about this one? The Holy Spirit is not just a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity, but is a real influential being. 58% of evangelicals reject that. By the way, that's us. We are evangelicals. 58% reject that. 74% of Catholics. How about this one? There is an absolute moral truth that applies to everyone at all times. 52% of evangelicals reject that. 69% of Catholics. And how about this last one? People cannot earn a place in heaven by being good or by doing enough good works. 58% of evangelicals disagree with that statement. 85% of, of Catholics. So if you look at this, basically what this is saying is that the majority of the people in our churches believe that people are basically good and as long as you're sincere you can get to heaven by doing enough good works all of that is antithetical to what the bible teaches when they crunch the numbers six percent of americans have a value system and a belief system that lines up with the bible six percent now some of you right now find that number shocking do you find that number surprising or shocking? It's because you live in a bubble. We, we tend to surround ourselves with people that, that are like us. But the fact is, around America, 6% of Americans find, uh, have a biblical worldview. Now, as I said, we might find that shocking, but we really shouldn't. Matthew 7, Jesus said this, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I left my uh, power cord, so give me, give me one second. So what Jesus has always told us is there's not a lot being saved. There's only a few being saved. But many are on the broad road to destruction. So that really shouldn't surprise us. Um, at all about that. Now, let's move on. So if only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview, what about the other 94%? What have they put in its place? Well, I got one word for it, or two words, a hot mess. I guess that's three words. You, you start looking at what people, their value system, and they're all over the place. And most of the times, these people's value systems will conflict, and they don't even, under, they don't even realize it. 
For example, you'll ask them, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes, I agree with that. Do you believe that Jesus was sinless? No, no, I believe He sinned. Well, you can't, it can't be both. The Bible says Jesus was sinless, so He was either sinless and it's the Word of God, or He wasn't sinless and you can't, everybody with me? It leads to these weird value systems where, where people will just, for example, they'll, they'll think it's immoral to put to death a, a convicted murderer, but they think it's perfectly fine to kill an innocent baby in the womb. How, how do those two things go together? Now, where do they get these things from? Well, let me tell you, first of all, where they don't get it. They're not reading the Bible. The fact is that most people across America are not doing what we are doing tonight. They're not reading their Bible. They're not studying their Bible, either individually or in a group. They, they really do not know what the Bible says. So if they're not getting their value system and their belief system from the Bible, where are they getting it? Well, they're getting it from culture. They're getting it from movies. They're getting it from, from books that people write. That's basically where they're getting it. Now, I'm fig- and the next one I'm going to tell you, and I'm about to meddle, so just brace yourself. And they get it from places like country music. The other day, I'm building a house, and <clears throat> I was out on the back porch, and one of my subs was in there working, and they were playing some, some country music. And I really don't care as long as they get the job done and get out. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me what they do. But anyway, they're playing country music, and this song comes on. And it's a, it's a well-known song. I remembered it. And it's by George Strait. And it goes like this. Last night I dreamed I died and stood outside the pearly gates. And suddenly I realized there must be some mistake. If they know half the things I've done, they'll never let me in. And somewhere from the other side, I heard these words again. They said, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. A secret that my daddy said was just between us. You see, daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. We've all, y'all heard that song before? Real, real well-known song. Now listen, we could dissect that song, but here's what I want you to understand. I want you to imagine a person that doesn't ever go to church. They don't read their Bible. They just go through life, listen to country music, and they hear songs like this. And then one day, somebody stops them in Winn-Dixie and says, Sir, if you died today, are you sure you'd spend eternity? Do you know where you'd spend eternity? And they say, Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd go to heaven. And that person says, well, why do you think that? Well, I just think God is like this loving daddy. You know, my daddy, we, I'm, I, I got kids and, 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 and I love my kids even when they're not perfect. And I just believe God is, is like that. And, and he's, are you with me? See, they've got a theology and they don't even know it. And it came from country music. It came from movies. It came from books. But it didn't come from the, from the Bible. Now, tonight, we are going to ask a question, and this is the question we're going to ask of ourselves. Am I a Christian? Am I sure that the Spirit of God dwells in me? Because if He doesn't, you don't belong to Christ. The Bible, we saw that last week. Am I a Christian? And here's the reason I bring this up. I'm not going to answer that question with a country music song. I'm not going to answer that question from some uh, movie or book that's put out for public consumption. You're going to find that answer one place, and that's in the Word of God. Okay, and that's where we're going to look. Now, before I get to that, let's start here. Should I even ask these questions? Should I be even asking myself, am I a Christian? Now, here's the reason I bring that up. Back when we started Romans 8, 
I told you guys that Romans 8 is pretty much about assurance. It's about assuring you of who you are in Christ and, and, and what that means. For example, the very first verse starts out Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no accusation. There's no trial. There's no punishment. There's no condemnation if you're a, a Christian. You are, you're free. You're free because your punishment has been borne by Jesus Christ on the cross. He bore your sins. He took the curse for you. So the whole point of this chapter is, is assurance. Yet, very, I don't know how many, but a lot of Christians struggle with this. I can pretty much guarantee you every single Christian at some point in their life will struggle with the fact, am I really saved? And I don't care if you're Bill Jenkins or Henry Jones or me or you. Everybody wonders from time to time, am I really saved? Now, here's the question, why? Why would we just all of a sudden one day think, you know, am I sure? I think one of the reasons that we struggle with assurance is because we struggle with this concept of grace. We really grace this just idea that somebody would do something so magnanimous for us with ab and require absolutely nothing from us. It's, it's just really hard sometimes for us to, to accept Several years ago, I ran across a book um, called Pillar of Fire, Pillar of Truth. It, it's published by an organization called Catholic Answers. They're the largest uh, Catholic apologetics group in, in North America. And I was interested at the time in, in what do Catholics believe about salvation. And so I, I was reading this, this book. And, and this is one of the statements in their book. We are saved by grace alone but not by faith alone, which is what Bible Christians teach. Okay, so there, now listen, my whole life, I've been taught we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by works, lest any man should boast. And then I open this book and it says, we're saved by grace alone, but not by faith alone. And I thought, okay, well, what does that mean? I, I read on. It says, we do not earn our salvation through good works, but our faith in Christ puts us in a special grace-filled relationship with God so that our obedience and love combined with our faith will be rewarded with eternal life. Now, that can get kind of confusing. So here's what they mean. Catholicism teaches that you're saved by grace, but you've got to do good works to maintain it. So basically what they mean is at your baptism, you are, you are put in a state of grace. You are saved. But every time you sin, you fall out. And then guess what you have to do? You have to go to Mass or you have to say Hail Marys and you go back into salvation until you sin again. Then you fall out. And then you do good works, which puts you back. And then you, guess what? Fall out. It's just this endless cycle in and out and in and out and in and out. It is an absolutely horrible way to live. You can never have assurance that you're saved. How, how do you know you've ever done enough? In fact, that very same booklet states this. The Bible does not teach that Christians have a guarantee of heaven. There can be no absolute assurance of salvation. That's Catholicism. You can never be assured that you've really done enough to be saved. Now, let me tell you, that, as I said, is a bad, that's a terrible way to live. Eternal life is like a carrot. You're always trying to chase it. You're always trying to chase it. Not quite sure 
that you've gotten it. And let me tell you, folks, that is not what the Bible teaches at all. That does not come from the Bible. That comes from outside the Bible. Listen to these two scriptures put back to back. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in Romans 4, 16, Paul says this, This is the reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be, say it with me, guaranteed. Guaranteed. You see, the fact is this. Now, here's the thing. We may look at their theology and say, well, that's wrong. But the fact is, a lot of Christians deep down buy into it. See, we think, I got to keep doing something. I, I, I got to perform. A lot of us think, I, I, the other day I was, I, was, uh, I was trolling through YouTube looking at some stuff and there was a lady there and she said, I'm not as godly as I used to be. And I thought, well, I wonder what she means by that. So I clicked on it. Well, what she was saying is she, she does this thing for, uh, for moms. And what she was saying is before she had kids, she felt godly because she had all this time to pray and, and, to, and to read the Bible and, and participate in Bible studies. And all of a sudden, she's got kids running around. And guess what? She can't find the time to spend. Are you with me? She don't feel as godly. That's perfectly natural, right? When you don't pray as much, I'm not reading my Bible as much. I'm not, I'm, we don't feel. And then all of a sudden, am I, am I really saved? We, we, it's like chasing that carrot. We, we don't understand that grace literally means grace. It's unmerited favor. You're getting something that you absolutely don't deserve. Listen, the only way that our eternal future can be guaranteed is if it is 100% based on God's grace. That's the only way. If, it's, if it depends on me, it's over. Forget it. I, I can't do it. It has to be based on grace. Listen to one of my favorite scriptures. As, as time goes by and the years pass, this scripture comes back to me more and more and more and becomes one of my favorites. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him, and this is my favorite part, who justifies the ungodly. You see, God is not in the business of justifying godly people. He's not in the business of justifying, which means make right with God. He's not in the business of justifying perfect people. He's in the business of making ungodly people right with him. And that's called grace. And that is a beautiful thing. You see, the fact is, from the moment that we put our faith in Christ, we are united with Him. We are adopted into His family. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance. We are forgiven. We are fully sanctified and perfect in His eyes. And we have entered into a permanent relationship with Him. And that relationship does not hinge on my works. It doesn't hinge on my behavior. It doesn't hinge on any religious acts. It doesn't hinge on how much I read my Bible or how much I pray or any of those things. It is a free gift called grace. And that sometimes can be really hard for us to accept. Now, grace is an absolutely beautiful thing. I am guaranteed to go to heaven. I am guaranteed because of God's grace and grace alone. Yet... Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself. Examine yourself. Look at yourself. Are you really saved? 
Are, re, are you really in the faith? Is Jesus in you and the person of the Holy Spirit? Now, I, I want to I look at this because on one hand, Romans 8 is all about assurance, right? You can be assured. You can know. Uh, I think it's First John says you can know. But then here's Paul saying you need to test yourself. Is that a contradiction? See, it's not a contradiction at all. God wants you to have assurance, but the only way you can really have assurance is to have evidence in your life. I want you to think about something. This is the first time I've ever wrote this down. I was proud of myself this week. I come up with something new. I was sitting there thinking about it, and I thought, you know, what? What? If, what there are other options. For example, what if the Bible required works for you to be saved? Like Catholics believe. Guess what? You could never have assurance. Even they admit that. Because you never know, you would never know, have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I, have I read my Bible enough? Have I done enough good works? Have I repented enough? You would never know. You'd be chasing that, that carrot your whole life. What if, on the other hand, the Bible just completely omitted good works altogether? You see, the Bible could have just said, I mean, what if it took out all the parts in the Bible about uh, being a new creation in Christ and putting off the old man and, uh, all, and sanctification and it just got rid of all those parts and, and you just got saved and it never said anything about change or anything like that. How would you ever know you were saved? How would, what would make you any different from that person or that? You'd never know. But you see, the Bible didn't do either one of those. It says you are saved, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace through faith, but you are created for good works, Ephesians 2, 10. We are saved, but we are saved unto good works because that's the evidence. And when we see the evidence of good works, now we know that the Spirit is living inside of us. So here's what we're going to look at tonight. What's the evidence in your life? Is there evidence in your life that you are really saved? If, if, if this was a courtroom and they dragged you into the courtroom and you had to prove, absolutely prove that you were a Christian, what would you do? What's the evidence that you would present? What makes you different? What makes you a Christian? We're going to look at that tonight. And here's where our scriptures tonight tell us. Now, by the way, this is not the only thing. But this is what Romans 8, 12 through 14 says. You are killing sin. You are killing sin. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Stop right there. Bible says, you, Paul says, you don't owe the flesh nothing. Number one, the flesh has been trying to kill you and destroy you from day one. And the flesh is temporary. It's going to die. You don't owe it anything. You owe the Spirit everything. You are not a debtor to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, listen. He's not talking about physical death. Everybody dies, right? He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. Now, what is that? John 17, 3 says this. Jesus said, this is eternal life that you will live forever. That's not what he said, is he? By the way, everybody lives forever. You either live, live forever with God in heaven or you live forever suffering in hell. Everybody lives forever. 
Jesus said this is eternal life. This is spiritual life that you know God and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is knowing God, having a relationship with him. Eternal death is the opposite. It's not knowing God. It's having no relationship with him. It's being apart from him for eternity. And then in Romans 8, 14, Paul says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you want to know for sure that you are a son, a daughter, or child of God? Paul says you must be led by the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? Look at verse 13 and 14 side by side. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for... That is a connecting word. It means because, because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What he's saying is this. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Or all those who are putting to death the deeds of the body are being led by the Spirit of God. Therefore, they are sons and daughters of God. You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You are killing sin. People who are led by the Spirit of God will be killing sin in their life. That is the evidence that the Spirit dwells within them and that they are born again. Now, I want to stop right here for one second. I want to talk a little bit about the Bible and, and, and how it comes at this a different way. Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus said this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. In Matthew 18, 8, Jesus said this, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Now, these are some, these are strong statements, aren't they? He's basically saying, you need whatever it takes, whatever it takes to gain eternal life, be willing to do it. Now, See, the thing here, there is a violence that is required in the Christian life, but it's not a violence against other people. It's a violence against yourself. It's a violence against the desires and the lust inside of you that would make peace with your sin. That's what he's talking about. By the way, when Jesus said, if your hand, your hand doesn't cause you to sin, what causes you to sin is the desires in your heart that carries through to your hands or your eyes or your ears. It's the heart. Jesus said, that's where the sin proceeds from. It's doing violence against the things in your life that would make peace with your sin. It's a violence against our natural tendency toward things like greed and jealousy and, and vengeance and unforgiveness and, and racism and all of these other things. Jesus said, listen, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Just do what comes natural. That's easy. Just give in to what comes natural and you'll go straight to destruction. You want to get on the narrow road, you better fight. You better make war against your sin. You better make war against those desires. You better bring your body into subjection. You do what it takes. You fight. Because it ain't easy. It's not going to be an easy road to do that. It's much easier just to give in and do what comes natural. That's the easy way. Romans 1, Paul gave us a list of all of these different things that we have to fight against. 
sexual immorality, wickedness, murder, deceit, backbiters, gossipers, pride, boasters. Uh, and by the way, if you, don't, if you don't fit any of those, how about these? Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. See, those are just natural things in us. If we give ourselves over, those are the things that we have to fight against. In 1656, a Puritan by the name of John Owen wrote a book on Romans 8.13, a whole book on one verse, 86 pages. It was called Mortification of Sin in Believers. By the way, that's an old English word. It comes from the word mortal. It means death. We don't use it any. Now we use it as a, as a word for embarrassment. She was mortified or he was mortified. But he wrote a whole book on killing sin. And one of his most famous sayings in that book was this, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do we want to enter the kingdom of heaven? If you do, then you better make war. You better do violence against your own sin. Tonight is our 36th lesson in the book of Romans. By the way, we started back in August. In Romans 1 1, while we were still online, um, I think this is probably the third or fourth month here, um, uh, here and back in the church. But we've been nine months in this book. And if there's one thing that's come up over and over and over and over again, is that there is only one way for sinners to be made right in God's sight. And that is to have His righteousness credited to me through faith. That's it. That is the only way. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not on the basis of my works. But Jesus said, make war. Paul said, kill sin. Why would they say stuff like that? Is it me? Am, am, am I, have I got to do all this to get into heaven? No, no. They're, they're not saying it so you will be saved. They're saying it because that's how saved people live. That's how saved people live. See, the Bible wants us to have assurance. It wants us to know that we're saved. But you've got to have evidence. Without evidence, you got, you, you, what is there in your life that's telling you that you know God? So Jesus said you make war. Paul says you kill sin because that's how saved people live their lives. You see, we find assurance when we realize, wow, this stuff is really going on in my life, and that's not me. It's evidence that the Spirit is dwelling inside of me, and He's changing me. Now, how do we do it? It, it, it would be remiss of me if I told you you need to be killing sin, and I didn't tell you how to do it. So I'm going to tell you tonight how to uh, do it. Now, the easy answer is right there in our verses, right? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So, first of all, it's by the Spirit. But what does that mean? Okay, what, what does that mean by the Spirit? Okay, I'm going to give you three things. Number one, first of all, we need to recognize the problem. Okay, we talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about it uh, 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 when we started talking about the work of the Spirit. But I want to reiterate it one more time. You need to recognize the problem. This is the root of our problem. Romans 8, 7 says this, the mind that is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Let me tell you, how you think is how you live. How you think 
is how you live. The mind that is set on the flesh will live according to the flesh. That is the 94%. That is the 94%. Just going through life, they got a belief system. They're just building a God of their own making. One day God's just going to let me into heaven because he's a loving daddy. And George Strait said it was true, therefore I believe it. And they just go through life. That's the 94%. They got their mindset on the flesh and they're living according to the flesh. 94%. You see, folks, our mind has to be changed. Our mind has to be changed to a mind that's set on the things of the world, the, the way the world thinks and the way the world behaves, to a mind that is said, set on the things of the Spirit. And when we do that, we choke sin out. We cut off its blood flow because that's what it feeds on is a mind that's set on the flesh. That's the problem. So we need a mind that is set on things of the Spirit. We need to be in the 6%. We need to have a belief system and a value system that lines up with the Bible and our lives will reflect the way we think. Number two, how do we do that? You take up the sword of the Spirit. You take up the sword of the Spirit. You do it with that book right there. That's the way you do it. The 94% is not reading that book. The 6% is reading that book and studying that book and meditating on that book just the way we're doing it here tonight. Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you go read Ephesians 6, the armor of God, all of the armor is pretty much protective. The helmet, the breastplate, the, the, the shield, all, there's one piece of weaponry that's used to kill. And that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay? That is the weapon that the Spirit will use to kill sin in our life. Now, how does it work? What gives the Word its power? You may have heard me say this before. When I was at FSU years ago, I took some religion classes and there was a, a professor, and the only, only way I remember that, his name was Dr. Priest. And I've always remembered that some however many years it's been now, 40 years. And uh, I'll never forget, I walked into that room, a Christian, taking New Testament and Old Testament, and he knew the Bible better than I did. That man could quote the Bible. He could quote New Testament. He could quote Old Testament. He knew where everything was. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards. But it took me about two minutes to figure out he didn't believe any of it. He didn't believe any of it. See, it's not enough to know the Bible. The Bible has to have power in your life. What, what was the difference between me and him? He knew the Bible better than I did. But there was a power inside of me that he didn't have. What made the difference? Galatians 3, 5 said this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? There it is. See, the fact is, he heard the Word of God, but he didn't believe the Word of God. I heard it, and I believed it. And that changed everything. You see, the fact is, when you take the Word of God, and you take belief and faith, that's like plugging into a socket. And when you do that, the Spirit flows. There's the power. That's, that's the power that begins to flow in your... It's really simple. You know, it's a funny thing. I've seen throughout my life, it, it seems like a lot of Christians go around, we're always looking for something new. Always chasing something new. Got to be the next this, the next this, the new this, the new that. 
Go read the Bible. Paul often will say, I remind you again. I remind you again. I remind you again. The Bible is really just, let's, let's stick to the basics. Keep the main thing the main thing. You don't need to chase after a bunch of new stuff. You see, the fact is, this is really pretty simple. We kill sin the same way we get saved. You see, faith not works is how we got saved, and faith not works is how we kill sin. It's how we grow as Christians in our life. This is not some... This is Christianity 101. This isn't for, for fancy, advanced people that are somehow spiritual, uh, more spiritual, and they can implement this, and other people can't. No. Faith is how you became a Christian. Faith is how you grow as a Christian. Faith is how you started this journey. Faith is how you end this journey. Believe the Word of God. Let me give you an example. You became a Christian. How? Because you heard the Word of God. Scriptures like Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Scriptures like there is no other name among men whereby we must be saved. Scriptures like Romans 10, 9, uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You heard those scriptures and guess what? You believed. And you acted. Because the way you think is the way you live. And that changed everything. Well, let me tell you, killing sin in your life is no different. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're struggling with doubt. And there's doubt. Uh, I think it's, uh, is it James says a double-minded man is not going to get anything from the Lord. I, I can't remember if it's James or not. But let's say you're struggling with doubt. So what do you do? You go to the Word of God. Mark 10, 27 says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And guess what you do? You believe. You believe. You just believe what he says. And guess what? Doubt flees. Let's take fear. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And what do you do? You just believe. You believe that God really will always be there for you. And he'll never abandon you. And he'll always strengthen you and, 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 and give you courage. And guess what? Fear flees. How about vengeance? Romans 12, 9, somebody's done you wrong and you're struggling. You want to get them back. And you read Romans 12, 19, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, say the Lord. And you know what? You just believe. And you say, okay, God, I, that's on you. I, I, I walk away from that and leave it to you. And then it's gone. How? Because faith. You just believe the word of God. How about greed? Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you guess what? You just believe it. You just believe it. And greed flees. All of a sudden, it doesn't become a problem in your life because you're trusting in the word of God. How about racism? We hear a lot of talk about that today. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you believe that. My identity is not that I'm a white man. My identity is I am a Christian. That is who I am. That is my identity. It becomes before me being a male, before my race, before my, my nationality. I am a Christian. 
And that brother or that sister doesn't matter if they're a different color. They are Christians and we are one. And racism flees because you just believe the word of God. How about worry? My guess is a lot of you struggle with worry. Matthew 6, 31, don't be anxious, don't worry, saying, what do we eat, what do we drink, what do we wear? The Gentiles, the unbelievers, seek after those things. Your heavenly Father knows you need it. He knows you need a roof over your head. He knows you need clothes on your back. He knows he need, you need food in your belly. He knows all that. Just trust him. Just trust him. And when you do, worry flees. One more, unforgiveness. Somebody in your life has hurt you badly. And you struggle with forgiveness. You just struggle with it. And, and you, you want to get rid of it. You know it's not right. And you read scriptures like Colossians 3.13. As the Lord has forgiven you, that's the way you have to forgive. And it's not this act of the will. It's just a, you just put your faith in the word of God. Hear it and believe it. And then the Spirit is just loosed in power in your life. And He does it. By the Spirit, you kill the deeds of the body. You kill those things. You allow the Spirit to flow through believing, just believing the promises of God. Now, I'll close with this. Why does it have to be done this way? This is a beautiful thing. Why does it have to be done this way? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now let me tell you, if eating or drinking is important enough to be done to the glory of God, how much more so would killing sin in your life be done to the glory of God? Are you with me? See, the fact is, if you could do it on your own, and by the way, maybe you can. Maybe you could overcome worry on your own. Maybe you could make enough money where you don't have to worry anymore. Maybe you can do that. But let me tell you, God doesn't get the glory. Jesus don't get the glory. See, the Bible wants us to kill sin in our life in a way that gives all the glory to Jesus Christ. And that would never happen if we did it through our own efforts. You see, that's what sets Christianity apart from some self-help book. See, maybe you can do all that through self-help. Maybe you can, but God doesn't get the glory. The Spirit wants us to do it in a way, putting our faith in the Word of God, allowing Him to flow, killing sin, and all the glory goes to Jesus Christ. You see, He is glorified when we kill sin by the Spirit, by hearing and, listen, believing the promises that He bought with His very blood. That's the way He's glorified. We believe the promises that He bought and purchased with His own blood. Let's pray. Father... As always, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this incredible, incredible word of God that you left us with. It is, a, it, is, it is so simple, but at the same time, so powerful. God, I, I know sometimes as Christians, we, we, we're, we're looking for, it was, in, it was true in the first century with the Gnostics. Everybody was looking for something hidden. But God, it's not hidden. It's, it's just right there. It's clear as a bell. Just believe the promises that Jesus died for. Believe the promises that you give us and allow the Spirit to flow in our life. God, give us understanding. Give us courage. Give us the ability 
to let go and let you do it. All we have to do is have faith. I thank you tonight, God, before I close, I want to thank you for these people. I want to thank you for the 6%. I want to thank you for the ones that haven't bowed their knee to culture, that are still coming together and reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God, whose value system and belief system is being influenced by truth and not by culture. God, give us courage. Help us to stand strong in the days ahead, to be a buttress of the truth, as Paul says in Corinthians, and to be a light to the world, as you say in your Gospels. We thank you, and we love you, and I will give you the praise, and we all will, for killing sin in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.